Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Unequal podcast. Today's episode is about the critical issue of the loss of life and damage to infrastructure and to livelihoods that comes with climate change. Just in the last month, floods in Pakistan have submerged a third of the country, killed almost 1500 people, destroyed millions of homes, affected more than 30 million people, killed livestock and destroyed crops. the total damages according to estimates could be as high as 10 billion us dollars which is about 4% of pakistan's annual gdp pakistan's climate change minister sheri rahman has called for developed countries who have contributed the most to climate change to pay, to pay reparations to developing countries who have done virtually nothing to contribute to the climate crisis and who are suffering some of the worst outcomes of climate change This is a demand that developing countries have been making for a long time sometimes using words like reparations and sometimes in other words the phrase used in the world of climate change negotiations is loss and damage financing Harjeet Singh who I will be talking to today is one of the world's leading experts on the topic he is head of the global political strategy at the climate action network international welcome harjeet how have you been Thank you, Kabir. I'm good. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So, um, Pakistan is witnessing one of the worst floods uh, that it has ever witnessed. Some of the some of the figures are just are just staggering. The 30 million people have been impacted. More than 1,200 people have died. The estimated economic losses are about 10 billion US dollars. So this is massive. uh the floods have been um, i think ongoing since middle of june uh, or maybe early july um but they've started to come into uh, sharp sharp notice now uh when was the first time when you realized that this th- these floods are severe well only in the last few days when we saw horrific pictures from pakistan emerging and especially uh, a situation where one third of the country is in water and the cop crop damage has been to the extent of 80% or more so that's when we all realize that how big uh, this impact is and uh, you know there has not been any uh, such uh, impact in pakistan we all remember how in 2010 uh, about uh, 20 billion people were rendered homeless but this is much bigger than that and uh, as people are saying this is of uh, biblical proportion so this is really unprecedented and uh, one can connect it with what climate change predictions have been it is very much in line with that unfortunately so so yeah as you mentioned that this has been it's not something that is completely unexpected the science has been predicting for a while that this this is going to happen and another thing that's being mentioned in the context of uh, what 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 is happening in pakistan is that pakistan has done very little to contribute to climate change and yet is among the countries which is the most vulnerable to climate change um can you explain a little bit on why this is important and why it is important to understand this well yes um uh, this is a a stark reality where pakistan's contribution to global carbon emissions is less than 1% but at the same time the country is uh, you know among the 10 most affected countries in the world by climate change and this shows the inequality that exists when we talk about 
global warming, the cause of global warming, as well as who is facing the brunt of climate change impacts. And uh, although we see impacts of climate change, such as uh, flooding, storms, uh, wildfires, drought, and sea level rise all over the world, uh, but it's the developing countries that are facing such grave impacts and they have little resources to recover from these impacts or even prepare for these climate impacts that have been predicted. And developing countries are least responsible for the climate crisis that we are facing today. And that's the kind of inequality that exists and both in terms of who caused the problem in the first place. It's handful of rich countries and powerful corporations and majority of developing countries are paying the cost of this damage uh, when they are least responsible for the crisis. Uh, but we have we have a mechanism uh, like the United Nations framework. Um, and why is it that and that is that is the platform which is supposed to solve these kind of issues, right? That is a platform where uh, developing countries and developed countries can negotiate on how and, and, and chart a path on how best to deal with climate change. So why is it that we we don't see a lot of uh, we don't see a lot of movement in the direction of addressing these inequalities, as you mentioned? You are absolutely right, Kabir. Um, in fact, the problem of global warming, as we now know, uh, was recognized about 50 years ago. And more than 30 years ago, the global community came together and realized that we need a global mechanism to deal with climate change. And that's how United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change uh, was agreed in 1992, uh, very clearly mentioning that rich countries uh, have a disproportionate role in causing the problem. And that's why they have to support developing countries in uh, changing the trajectory so that we can move away from fossil fuel based development that has caused the problem in the first place. At the same time, be more prepared uh, to what we call then adverse effects of climate change. That's what the convention men mentioned in 1992. And several decades down the line, and when you see what happened in Pakistan and what's happening also uh, in many parts of Africa, um, and we have seen some devastating uh, floods and climate impacts in India as well, it's very clear that the world is not ready to deal with the impacts of climate change and shows how in the last 30 years, little has been done to support developing countries prepare for these climate impacts. So uh, one of the things that is mentioned in, in, in climate change conferences and in climate negotiations, the term that is mentioned uh, for what you're just describing is loss and damage. But uh, this is a term which is which is not very well understood by most people who are outside that climate no negotiations process. Like, like most terms in those processes, even this term. But it is vital for everyone, especially in the developing world, to understand it because it impacts their lives. So uh, can you explain perhaps with the, in the context of, of Pakistan, what loss and damage is uh, beyond the technicalities, so what it means um, and, and what it, what it, uh, why it's important 
for the world sure kabir uh, in fact as i was just mentioning that the climate change convention mentions a phrase adverse effect, effects of climate change uh, it means that a situation when the impacts are going to hit us uh, and showing that we were not able to adapt the term loss and damage came into being in the climate negotiations in 2007 and loss and damage basically means that you reach a situation beyond adaptation which means you are hit by climate impacts such as floods cyclones uh, drought um, or sea level rise and glacier melt and you incur losses and damages losses in terms of uh, your loss to a uh, loss of life loss of property um, loss of crops and uh, damage to infrastructure and we've also seen how in the long term we are facing other so called non economic impacts such as loss of culture loss of language loss of territory uh, so there are a range of losses and damages uh, that people are uh facing because of climate impacts and the term loss and damage means a situation which is beyond adaptation so in the climate change uh parlance when we talk about climate action uh all the effort over the last few decades have been on mitigation which means reducing greenhouse gas emissions and protecting forests uh so which is why we which is why we hear the calls for Uh, quitting meat or reducing or or switching to electronic vehicles but but that's not what loss and damage is about exactly so so that's the that's the first step that we all recognize the whole world has to take so that we move away from uh, fossil fuels we move we reduce our carbon footprint and then we also realized in fact in 2001 uh, the whole world came together to understand that we also need to talk about adaptation which means preparing for these climate impacts and there were a range of agreements that happened in 2001 uh, why why is that important is is that because a uh, a certain degree of climate impacts are already built in to the atmosphere why absolutely so we are already living um in a world which is 1.2 degree warmer so average global warming as we define is already exists which means that uh emissions that were made over the last few decades and in fact one and a half century are now very much part of our system and uh because the climate system works on lag so the effects of those emissions are being seen only now over the last few years and decades which means the emissions that are happening now are going to affect us for a very long time and this is why it's important to reduce our emissions immediately uh, so that we can reduce the long term effects but what we are facing now is a result of emissions that were made in the last few decades and over a century that is exactly the reason we say that today's climate crisis has been caused by the rich world which means the rich industrialized nations who emitted over the last one and a half century for industrialization and without controlling their emissions 
and that led to the climate emergency that we are facing right now so which means that the impacts that are going to happen and we are facing right now we need to be preparing well in advance and that's what we call as adaptation which means we adapt to those impacts and in practical terms it means retrofitting our infrastructure and our homes it means that you know planting seeds that can survive increasing salinity or the um, uh, erratic nature of rains early rains late rains more less rains um, and also building dikes so that our crops are not affected by um, saline water so measures like that but because adaptation has also not been done by developing countries mainly because of lack of resources and uh, the weak governance system as we saw in pakistan uh, we are seeing more loss and damage so it's important to understand climate action as part of a continuum so we needed to mitigate which means reduce our emissions uh, and protect forest we did not do that in time some impacts are logged in so we were supposed to prepare for those impacts there were very little resources or policies to prepare in advance which means do adaptation we did not do it so what we are facing right now is a loss and damage situation which means that either adaptation was not possible or was not done in time thanks uh, that i think explaining it in those terms is 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 very important as well so that the first step is of course mitigation which is to stop emissions right now as of today uh, but that's not going to happen but uh, so that is to to ensure that there is that the climate change that we see in the future is minimized adaptation is to adapt to the climate change that is already built in and the extreme weather events that are going to happen because of because of the warming that is already built in to the atmosphere and loss and damage is to prepare especially for developing countries or or to or to have a mechanism to finance the losses that they are going to suffer right so so now can you uh, can you explain how loss and damage has been negotiated at in climate change conferences over the years how how the reception of this term and the issue um has has evolved uh, over the years and you've been part of climate change negotiations for i don't know longer than most people have been alive <laughs> uh, well, uh, so, yes. so like just to explain how loss and damage the issue has evolved over the years it's it's yeah. it's i think it's still not uh, it's still not uh, it's something that the developed countries don't like to talk about right um yes but things are changing but before i go and talk about the um how the loss and damage negotiations and how uh it's they are placed at this very moment kabir i want to go back to the previous point uh, on the steps 30 yeah. years ago the sequencing of mitigation adaptation and loss and damage uh, was correct but because of those 30 years of inaction we have reached a point where we need to be doing all three kinds of actions uh now and they are all equally important we have seen how paris agreement has a temperature goal of staying below 1.5 degree in fact it also mentions 2 degree but now science is clear even a fraction of warming can bring devastating impacts and we are seeing that all around 
So we have to make sure that we stay below 1.5 degree. So even 1.5 degree of average global warming is going to be devastating. At 1.2 degree, look at the kind of impacts we are seeing all around. So we cannot afford to breach the target of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's one. But at the same time, as impacts have been rising, we cannot say that we will adapt later. We have to adapt now, which means that we have to put resources to make sure that developing countries are able to invest in better infrastructure, in better systems uh, to deal with it, you know, which requires like early warning systems and so on. But at the same time, as we are already facing impacts, people are losing their homes, their crops, their incomes. We have to help them recover from climate impacts, which means even the response to losses and damages that people are facing, it has to happen now. So the sequence, which was the right sequence 30 years ago, now all three pillars of climate action, mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage are equally important. And we have to put resources uh, for all three kinds of actions. Now, coming to how loss and damage negotiations are happening. So after a lot of uh, fight and pressure from developing countries and civil society, we got Warsaw International Mechanism for Loss and Damage in 2013 uh, in Warsaw. That's how the name uh, Warsaw International Mechanism. Uh, and it was very clear that Warsaw International Mechanism uh, had to um, play a very important role in terms of knowledge generation, coordination, but also action and support. Now, action and support meant uh, having a mechanism, as you said, to respond to uh, such crisis that we are facing right now, like you know, floods, cyclones, and, and storms, and sea level rise, and so on. Um, at the same time, providing uh, technical support and financial resources as part of action and support. But rich countries did not even allow that discussion to proceed. So we did fairly okay in terms of knowledge generation. So you now see that discipline of climate impacts or loss and damage has grown over the last few years. Uh, many bodies came together and started coordinating on, on how uh, we can respond to losses and damages. But in terms of money, not a single penny has been provided by the UN climate change uh, system to help people who are losing their farms and homes and incomes right now. And this is where it has become extremely important to have this particular gap in the financial architecture plugged in right now. And that's how at COP26 in Glasgow, developing countries got united. So the biggest block of developing countries, G77 and China, that represents 85% of population said we need a loss and damage finance facility, which has been a long pending demand of civil society. In fact, as Climate Action Network, we went to Madrid uh, COP in 2019 with a very specific demand of loss and damage finance facility. And rich countries are dragging their feet. So instead of agreeing to establish loss and damage finance facility, they proposed a Glasgow dialogue, uh, a three-year dialogue, which can only mean a talk show without delivering anything unless we as civil society and developing countries turn that into a, into a reality and into something that delivers loss and damage finance facility.
So why is it like like you mentioned that the rich countries at the at one of the climate negotiations or at all of them refuse to even talk about it? So can you just describe a little bit on what happens in these negotiation rooms? Uh, I've been to two cops, but I still understand very little of what actually happens there. I, all all, all I, I can see is a bunch of suits walking in and out of these rooms, looking very, very busy. But what happens inside? How? What is the process by which they say that, no, we are not going to talk about something as important as loss and damage? Well, there is no doubt that uh, from outside, it may look that these um, UN conferences are very fancy, but we know they are very intense. And, uh, and the food is not great either. <laughs> exactly. So imagine with bad food and, uh, you know, you are stuck in uh, the conference centers uh, for really, really long hours and uh, you are fighting over those commas and semicolons um, and shall and should. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's important because that's a space where uh, about 200 countries come together to develop policies and measures that are going to be applicable around the world. So agreeing on something uh, which is uh, agreeable to all 200 nations is not an easy job. You know, within a family agreeing on even a model of television can become very, very difficult. So imagine 200 countries with uh, varying uh, levels of economies and and in social structures and their uh, priorities, it can be complex. But at the same time, when we all agree that there is a climate emergency that we have to respond to, and science tells us who is responsible and who has to do more, and this is where the concept of equity and justice comes in, where developed countries who are responsible for the crisis have to do more, and developing countries need to be supported. And that's why these negotiations are important from the perspective of equity and justice because we cannot just do these actions nationally without getting support from the international system because countries who are facing the climate crisis are not the ones responsible. Now, going to loss and damage, uh, rich countries do not want to create a new financing stream on loss and damage because of the fear that loss and damage is related to unlimited liability and compensation. Now, this is the main reason they have been ignoring the request from developing countries. In, if you look at it from a justice perspective, it is a matter of compensation and reparations. Uh, and rich countries cannot deny that, uh, which they are doing right now. But when it well, can you can you explain this issue of liability uh, a little bit and w what is the fear what what do you, what do they think will happen just in case they establish a mechanism? Well, they think that if a mechanism is established, in fact, a mechanism has already been established on loss and damage. It's about the finance now. Financing. They they think that if money starts flowing to developing countries in response to the losses and damages that countries are facing right now or in future then it clearly shows the concept of liability which or it rather uh, holds rich countries liable to pay for the damage which conceptually and justice wise is a is a reality but at the same time when we talk about un system it is based on 
cooperation and solidarity. In fact, developing countries decided not to use the word compensation uh, or liability in 2012 uh, in exchange for setting up a mechanism which is based on international cooperation and solidarity, which is based on the agreed language uh, called means of implementation, which means providing finance and technology and capacity building to developing countries uh, who are facing loss and damage now and in future. But rich countries did not keep their word and they have not even allowed any discussion on loss and damage finance. And that's why developing countries had to put pressure on them uh, in Glasgow in November 2021 to get an agreement on uh, loss and damage finance. So rich countries have to understand that in the UN system, we are still adopting a very constructive approach to help people who are facing climate impacts and have no resources uh, to recover from the climate impacts. Um, and um, do you think that the develop, developing countries uh, have been united in this uh, demand for loss and damage? Uh, that they've, be, they've come together as one. Like I was reading, there was a recent study which found that only 10 of 46 least developed countries mentioned the term loss and damage in their nationally determined contributions. Um, I mean, that might be for different reasons. But do you think that there is always unity in within the developing countries um, in, in demanding this? Well, when it comes to the unity among developing countries on the demand for loss and damage uh, finance uh, at these climate conferences, I would say they are together and that's how they submitted a joint proposal uh, in Glasgow. And they reiterated the same uh, at Bonn uh, in June this year. But at the same time, we need to understand we are talking about a group that has more than 130 countries. And within that large group, there are other constituencies. For example, there's a group of least developed countries, uh, which is economy-based group. Then there's also a group of island states, which is based on their geographical reality. And then there are bigger countries like India, China, uh, and Brazil, South Africa. They have their own group. So, and then you have Latin American nations. Uh, which is also based on geography. Now, there is no doubt that the issue historically has been led by island states, the group called AOSIS, supported by least developed countries. And then you have other groupings who have supported their leadership. So it's not that everybody is equally leading the issue, but they all believe. And there are uh, you know, smaller groups who have led this fight. Uh, but I think at the political level, they are absolutely united. There could be uh, a few differences uh, in terms of how they look at loss and damage finance to be provided. And I'm sure they are sorting out those details. And when we reach Sharmal Sheikh for COP27, uh, they will have more um, common approach, uh, you know, beyond just the unity to ask for specific uh, measures to be adopted at COP27. Okay, so what would some of those measures look like? What should we expect from COP27? What would you expect? Uh, what would you want to happen at COP27? What is your dream scenario? Well, as Climate Action Network, we have been absolutely clear 
as i mentioned in response to our demand for loss and damage finance facility what we got uh, was glasgow dialogue a three year dialogue and we are putting pressure on developing countries uh, uh, and developed countries that don't let this dialogue be a talk shop where we come and talk about the issue and that doesn't result into anything so we actually provided clear milestones so year 1 which is 2022 must result in agreement on establishing loss and damage finance facility with clear functions uh, as well as you know how money is going to be mobilized year 2 that's 2023 countries must agree on the operational modalities and further flesh out what kind of uh, measures would be required to actually make it uh, real which means how money uh, can be mobilized through various sources and third year that's 2024 which is the last year of the glasgow dialogue the discussions should result in operationalizing loss and damage finance facility and money starts flowing to developing countries so we have a clear a uh, plan and milestones on how this glasgow dialogue and the discussions at uh, these climate conferences every year should result into a an actual mechanism so kabir just imagine people who have lost their homes and who do not have sufficient access to food in pakistan and same situation is happening in many parts of africa right now uh, because of drought and even floods um even in china we have seen floods and drought happening at the same time um in india several parts are flooded those people cannot wait they have to be provided food now they have to be provided support so that they can rebuild their homes and livelihoods now and there is no global mechanism to support when 90% of disasters are weather related and now any weather related you actually identify climate change definitely has a role to play small or big so we cannot really wait we know these processes take time and this is where the negotiators from both developed and developing countries must adopt um, a humane approach in agreeing for a, a mechanism like loss and damage finance facility to start supporting people now who are facing climate emergency as we speak well the developed countries uh, uh, respond to this by saying that we are already providing finance like there is aid flowing into pakistan right now uh, there's been uh, to several disasters that there is a certain degree of aid that the developed countries provide whenever disaster strikes so they say why do you need a new mechanism that's their question well that the gap that exists in terms of what is needed and what is provided in the form of humanitarian aid uh, needs to be recognized now let's also understand that the humanitarian aid system works on uh, the basis of international cooperation and solidarity there is no obligation attached to that which means that donor countries uh, and uh, individuals who provide humanitarian aid uh they do it out of compassion out of solidarity but that's never enough but when we talk about loss and damage that has to be based on needs so even if you look at right now the humanitarian appeals that have been uh, floated by the un it's in couple of 100 million dollars 
but the extent of damage that happened in Pakistan is to the tune of $10 billion. And even this is seen as a conservative estimate. Imagine one, you know, one third of countries underwater and over 30 million people uh, are affected. It's going to require billions and billions of dollars. And for a country like Pakistan or any poor country, uh, it's going to be absolutely difficult. And I can give you an example of Hurricane Maria uh, that struck Dominica in 2017. They lost more than 200% of their GDP by one disaster event. So that's the scale of damage. Humanitarian aid, which is based on whims and fancies of donors, especially countries who provide aid based on their trade relationship or based on geopolitics, that cannot be the basis of supporting people. When we talk about people facing loss and damage because of climate change, there has to be a system that's based on obligation and needs-based. That's the difference. So we are not saying that humanitarian aid should not continue. Absolutely. As I said, it's based, based on compassion and solidarity uh, because individuals also uh, provide support. Uh, we have seen how uh, international community comes together, but that's not enough. Over and above, we need a system under UNFCCC, United Nations Limburg Convention on Climate Change, to help people who are suffering climate impacts now. Uh, Pakistan's climate change minister, um, uh, Sherry Rahman, has, has called for reparations to be paid uh, by the West to developing countries in Pakistan in, in particular right now. Uh, do you think it's, uh, uh, how do you, what do you think of that phrasing, uh, reparations or compensation? Is that the right approach? Well, as I said earlier, conceptually, if you look at, it's about reparations and compensation. When somebody faces any kind of loss or damage because of not their fault or because of somebody else's fault, then that person who has caused the damage is liable to pay. That's the concept of reparations we are talking about. Um, and there is historical injustice that has been caused to Pakistan and other developing countries when we talk about global warming. However, we know that the terminology of compensation or reparations uh, will never be agreed under UNFCCC where everything uh, is decided based on consensus. Rich countries will never allow that to happen. And that's why we need to have a system where we are adopting the principles of international cooperation and solidarity. So uh, I think it's a, it's a natural response uh, by the minister uh, who is seeing his country so impacted, uh, you know, when they have not contributed to the problem uh, and they are one of the most vulnerable countries in the world, uh, their demand is justifiable. But when we talk about a mechanism that will always be based on something that is created out of consensus under the UN system. Okay. Uh, my final question is, um, what can uh, individuals, uh, people who have other jobs are not day-to-day uh, -day involved in, in these uh, either these negotiations or not even reading about this but but i'm sure everyone most people in the world know about climate change are concerned about climate change what can they do specifically about loss and damage so first thing is to recognize that we are already living as we call it in the era of loss and damage which means that 
climate impacts are already hitting us. We can see them all around. I keep saying that even if I switch on television for 10 minutes and uh, browse three channels, news channels, I find mention of climate change or weather-related disasters. I, and, and this is a data that, that I, can, I can vouch for. So we are facing the climate emergency now, which means our governments need to be prepared to deal with these impacts. Of course, we need to be preparing for that well in advance through adaptation measures and also systems so that when we are hit by these disasters, we are able to help people uh, recover from these impacts. But we know that it's not going to be enough. So on one hand, our governments, both in the developing and developed world, need to be prepared for these uh, um, you know, impacts. But at the same time, we need to put pressure on our government so that they hold rich polluters both in terms of corporations and countries to account so that we have a system in place. Uh, and we also need to look at as individuals, uh, we need to, on one hand, as we say, we have to reduce our carbon footprint, which is important. But most important thing is to put pressure on policymakers so that we adopt a greener development pathway so that we don't create problems for future. And that is applicable to all countries, including developing countries. So we have to move away from fossil fuel-based development. We have to make sure that we are prepared in advance to deal with these impacts, both in terms of adaptation, at the same time helping people recover from the impacts as we are already facing the climate crisis. Uh, thank, thanks a lot, Harjit. It was great talking to you. Very enriching and very enlightening, as always. Thanks, thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Kabir, and thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to speak to you.